0: I heard a story recently about an African tribe. And in this particular African tribe, I forget the name right now, the birth date of a child is counted not from when they're born by our standards. And it's counted not from when they're conceived, which some other cultures do. The birth date of a child in this tribe is counted from the day that the child was a thought in its mother's mind. That's the day the child was conceived or born truly, because everything that we do comes out of mind. And when a woman... Decides that she will have a child and that fills her then she goes off and sits under a tree by herself and she listens until she can hear the song of the child that wants to come and after she's heard the song of this child she comes back to the man who will be the child's father and teaches it to him And then when they make love to physically conceive the child, some of that time they sing the song of the child as a way to invite it. And then the mother teaches that child's song to the midwives and the old women of the village as she's pregnant so that when the child is born and arrives, the old women, the people around her, sing the child's song to welcome it. And then as the child grows up, the other villagers are taught the child's song, it falls down, hurts its knee, somebody picks it up and sings its song to it. Or it does some beautiful thing, maybe it's the puberty rites and it does this great thing, And as a way of honoring this person, they sing his or her song. And it goes that way through their life in marriage. The songs are sung together. And finally, even when this child is ready to die, all of the villagers know his or her song. And so when they're lying there ready to die, they sing for the last time the song to that person. When I heard this story, I was very moved, very touched by it. There was in me a kind of a longing for that level of harmony with life, for that way of honoring birth and death that the story illustrates, for that kind of connectedness with the heart and body and spirit, To hear the song of birth and death in some ways is like the art of meditation. It's a simple listening to hear the song of that child or to hear the song of our life. To pay attention or to listen means not to be aware of what was in the past That's done. And certainly there are patterns and things that still are with us in the present from the past, but that's here now. The past is gone. And to listen also isn't to listen to the future, because that's just imaginary fantasy. It's not here. To listen is to be awake in the present, Without moving away from or running away from what's actually here. This art of listening to the songs. The present is a very interesting place. It is difficult and beautiful. Did you ever wonder after you, you know, everybody saw Ram Das's book, Be Here Now, right? seems like a terrific idea (laughs) why don't we do it if it's such a great idea why not have you looked because in the present is joy and sorrow and in the present is birth and death and in the present is pleasure and pain and in the present are some things we just as soon not feel But the present is also interesting in another way. It's the only place we can see. It's the only place we can learn or touch or smell, just here. And even more importantly, it's the only place we can love. If you love in the past, what is that? A memory. It might be a good memory, but it's not worth a whole lot. And if you love in the future, what is that? It's a fantasy. Our society is quite good at that. But the only place to actually love another person or a tree or a living creature or the earth itself is when we're here in the present. Otherwise, if we don't live here, what may happen is what Joseph Campbell said. He said, you climb the ladder only to discover it was against the wrong wall. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) So this attention is really very simple and yet it's an extraordinary thing in our lives because to be present and pay attention is to not want it to be some other way. Always we're trying to make it or get or have or change or progress or accumulate or get rid of. We always have a plan and we're measuring how we're doing. But to pay attention to what's actually here is quite extraordinary without trying to make it different, without judging it or resisting it, without some agenda. Usually we have some goal, don't we? Alan Watts wrote about this quality of attention and meditation. He said, the only things in human life that are really equivalent to it are music and dance. Because when you play a piece of music, the object isn't to get to the end of the piece of music. If you did that, then the fastest musicians would be the best do Beethoven at triple time, right? (laughs) The object in playing a piece of music is to play it and be there and enjoy it at its appropriate rhythm and tempo. Or the same in dance. If the idea in dance was to get with your partner from here to the end of the room, it would be a very funny dance, wouldn't it? But it doesn't have a place in time or space. Rather, the dance itself is the object, as the music is. It's a opening to what is actually here in the present rather than trying to be anywhere else, and being in this present in harmony with it. It's a wonderful thing. Now, how does that relate very directly to what we've been practicing here? We pay attention to the breath. Initially, it's hard to do. Maybe you're lucky, you get two, three breaths in a row and then gonzo, right? Gone for a while and you come back and you do it a few hundred, thousand, whatever times. And gradually you get here a little bit more, very important. You might be here for four breaths now instead of two, say, well, what's four breaths worth? You know what it's worth? It means you're here alive twice as much as you were a few days ago. It's worth a great deal. And as we pay attention to the breath, often it gets soft or subtle. And then the mind tends to wander or you try and make it a little stronger something so you can feel it, right? But what you want to do is let the softness of the breath bring the mind down to a subtle and soft attention to see if you can feel that. Feel all of its rhythms. Notice, is it warm or cool on the in-breath or out-breath? Is the rising... Longer and the falling short? Is there tingling with the breath? Is there space between it? Really begin to feel its rhythms in our body. There's a lot the breath can teach us. At first it seems kind of boring, and it can be boring, no question about it. Mostly it can teach us from its rhythm, like music, because everything has a rhythm. And if we could really feel its rhythm, we'd also be aware of the rhythmic nature of our heart beating. I don't mean literally feeling your heart too, but that's another part of our rhythm. Or the rhythm of cerebrospinal fluid in our spine and brain washing back and forth. The rhythm of peristalsis in our intestines. The rhythm of winter and spring and summer and autumn. And the rhythm of the fact that our galaxy, a hundred thousand light years across... And what was it, a billion stars is turning every ten million years we're kind of two-thirds of the way out like on a Ferris wheel and we're going around (laughs) I mean it all has its rhythms and so what feeling the breath when we do can begin to teach us is what it means to live in rhythm rather than in some other place it can get very subtle to rest in the breath Certain teachers, people I've practiced with, others where you really work with the breath, will tell you every day, come in and tell me something new about the breath. That's all right for a week. <laughs> but how about f- for a month or two or three months, you know, tell me a hundred new things about the breath. Hmm. Very interesting. All day long you're looking, there must be something new here. right? But it's even deeper than that. I have a, an acquaintance, a kind of a friend who is a psychologist who works with the breath in tandem with other people. As a way to connect with people, he breathes in the rhythm that they do. And he wrote a book recently, Arnold Mendel is his name, called Coma. It's one of the things that he does, besides breathing along with people in his therapy, is to go into hospitals and sit with people, even in coma, and breathe along with them, and to his, not his total surprise, but to some surprise, those, many of the people who were in coma, who didn't have severe brain damage, but were in coma for other reasons, when he'd breathe along with them, would wake up. And he tells these stories in this book. And a lot of times I've heard this story from Stephen Levine and others. Anyway, in this particular case... He went in the hospital, and there was this old black man named John who'd been lying in a coma for six months. And he sat next to his bedside, and he held his hand. He was lying there kind of with a raspy breathing. And he said, I started to breathe along with him and squeeze his hand with each breath and make that noise, (sighs) with each breath as he breathed out, just sitting there. And after about 10 minutes of just breathing his breath, squeezing his hand, and making the same sound, all of a sudden he opened his eyes and he sat up. After six months, he said, You see that? I said, Sure. What was that? He said, A big white ship's coming for John. Are you going to take it? I asked. Not me, he yelled, I'm not getting on that ship. <laughs> Why not? I asked. That ship's gone on vacation. It's a cruise ship i got to get up in the morning and go to work. John had worked hard all his life and was now in his 80s. His cancer had reduced him to a bag of bones. He was stuck at the end of life because he couldn't allow himself to go on vacation. So I said to him, well, you know, going to work sounds okay, but maybe you should check the ship out. Take a look in there and see who's driving that ship. So he closed his eyes eyes open startled, he said wow there's angels down there driving that ship (laughs) do you want to find out where it's going i asked so he went inside again looked came back out he said that ship's going to bermuda (laughs) well i i knew he was looked like a kind of practical guy so i said to him well what's it cost and a minute later he said it doesn't cost anything it costs nothing Think about it. I said, ever take a vacation? Nah, never had a vacation. I've been working and working and working. Well, you might try it. "Eh," He started to think about it. Chances are, if I don't like it, I could probably come back. I said to him, yeah, maybe you could. (laughs) Then I said to him, you do what you want. I'll trust your judgment. I'm busy. I have to go and see someone else now. And so I left him. He closed his eyes, and that was it. When we came back 30 minutes later, he had died had gone to Bermuda. That's a true story. So the breath is a really powerful instrument or vehicle just to listen to it. I don't mean that you have to do something special but just to feel its rhythms, just to learn how to be settled with the breath, how to rest with the breath itself is important. Then the body We work with the breath. We work with the body. What song does our body sing this retreat? Like the song of that African woman's child. What story does it tell? Be very simple with it. I don't mean a complicated story, but what's actually present from this body? Sometimes it's pleasant. Fine, just listen to that, open. Often it's not especially in the beginning, we've talked about it, there's tightness and tension, and all the patterns of contraction or holding of our life. When we sit and meditate, they show themselves, and they hurt. And you think, I'm doing something wrong. You're not doing anything wrong. You're just sitting here minding your own business, and your body is telling you something. It's telling you how it's been holding, and where it's been afraid, and what's been contracted. And so you sit and you note it, pain, tension, tension, tightness, whatever it is, and you give it all the space it wants. Not trying to change it, not trying to get it to go away, but you feel this tightness in the shoulders, tightness, tightness, not in order to change it, but give it as much space as it would like. See what it does. Oh, it gets more tight. Tightness, tightness, terrible tightness. (laughs) Very interesting. Terrible tightness, terrible tightness. Just acknowledging it and giving it as much space as it wants. And eventually, in its own way, things open. Then other kinds of things come. Sometimes there's deeper pain or hot or cold or fire or kundalini things. That's what they call it. It's just energy, really. All kinds of stuff. At every retreat, at least a quarter of the people sitting... Are going through some really strong physical stuff. It's not always the same person. They might come to one retreat and sit very peacefully, and the next retreat they come and there's fire and all this stuff going on. That's not your job to figure out. It's to be with what's actually in the present. To relate to this body as part of the opening of our practice and our spirit. Just to be with it. With this extraordinary fact of being embodied, of being incarnated. An amazing thing. and A lot of us have tried to avoid it for a long time, you know, quite seriously. So here we're asked to acknowledge, to listen to its song, to honor, to touch it with kindness, to relate to it. It's easy to use spiritual practice to try to avoid our bodies or our feelings or stuff that we don't like. But it always comes back to haunt us. It does. You can't get enlightened and kind of get rid of that. It doesn't work that way. If you don't open to it, it will come and get you later. It's true. There's a story in this uh, recent Buddhist Peace Fellowship newsletter of a young woman who went to practice meditation. She's a woman who was born with a kind of a thalidomide arm that was she was missing the lower half of her arm and just had a bit of a stump that was sticking out and she talks about what it was to go and meditate and deal with that and first of all she said you can't imagine the childhood because people would look at it and it was repulsive and ugly and they didn't want to see it and children she'd get in an elevator and some little kid would say what's wrong with her arm and the parents would go shh don't say anything you know And that was how it was for her growing up. People didn't want to deal with it, or wouldn't ask, or kind of avert their eyes. And then what did she do? She did the same thing. We all have that arm, you know, somewhere in us. And it's very, very sad, but it's true. She went to sit in meditation. She did it Zen, where you kind of have this mudra with your hands in in the middle. And she said it was so hard because I only had one hand there, and and it was there was nothing to support it on. And no one at the Zen center talked to her about it either initially. Then she said at one point, "I remember the first time I really looked at my arm. I was 25 years old to really look at it. Do you understand?" So we have to look at this body and this life directly. And then when she really started to deal with it, she went and she took karate and learned to break boards with it. And then she studied massage, this thing that was so deformed that people didn't like. And she learned to be a healer and to touch people with both of her arms. If you can imagine what that would put you through. So we have this body... And we're asked in our meditation and our spiritual life not to try to change it, but to honor it and listen and feel and sense in the present what's here. The breath, the body. Then as we settle, John talked about so much last night, the different hindrances come up. All the different... Difficulties based on our habits or our small sense of ourselves or our fears, restlessness, doubt, desire, all the things where we feel incomplete or frightened. What to do with them? The most important thing, the same as the sensations of the body. You just name them restless, restless, fear, fear and listen to it make friends with it let it too arise and pass and be part of the meditation usually we resist and fight and try and get rid of them have you noticed I don't like the sleepiness I don't like the doubt I don't like the, I, I shouldn't be doubting I should know what I'm doing I don't like the anger or the judgment go away don't stop judging that's no good right here is Gandhi Mahatma Gandhi, he says, I have only three enemies. My favorite enemy, the one most easily influenced for the better, is the British Empire. (laughs) My second enemy, the Indian people, is far more difficult. Anyone who's ever traveled in India will understand that. (laughs) But my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence. (laughs) And so what happens is as we sit and feel our breath and let the body open by paying attention to whatever wants to be there, hot, cold, pain or whatever, and the hindrances arise, we usually fight them and resist them. And they stay longer. They stay a lot. The longer you resist them, the longer they'll stay that long. That's how long they'll stay. Now, there's a very interesting moment in the Buddha's history... He did six years of ascetic practice after leaving the palace and deciding to seek enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, himself and others, to seek the answer to the freedom in the midst of birth and death. He did every kind of austerity, fasted and um, all, you know, and the yogis in India know austerities, let me tell you, beds of nails and staring at the sun and starving yourself and holding your breath the Buddha talks about I held my breath until my ears popped and winds rushed in my body and incredible austerities trying to suppress hindrances and desires and kind of squash himself and then one day he realized it wasn't working very well he tried it to the max as far as anyone could do and he was sitting one day in the forest and a memory came to him all unbidden of himself as a child, sitting in his father's garden, in his father's field near the palace, under a rose apple tree. And he remembered himself sitting there and becoming very calm and concentrated and peaceful and having this wonderful sense of joy and wholeness that comes from that calm and peacefulness and concentration. And he said, maybe that's the way. Maybe it isn't to fight this stuff, but maybe the resting, the innocence of the child, the openness, the beauty, the joy of just being there, maybe that is the way that I can discover a freedom. And that was the moment that he changed his whole way of practice, and instead of fighting himself, he began to take nourishment and care for his body. And then he began to listen and pay attention rather than fight against things. A very important moment in the Buddhist path of awakening. To practice like a child. So suppose we do that. We sit, learn the rhythms of the breath, feel the body as it goes through all its openings, retreat after retreat. We name the hindrances and don't resist them but let them come and go. As we listen more deeply with an openness and a fearlessness of our being and our hearts, there comes often a great emotional release. Sometimes I call this the Freudian layer because it's the layer that we also can't ignore or will come back as sure as anything, of unfinished business from the past. Jack Engler, who teaches here, a meditation teacher and psychologist at Harvard, says that all of Vipassana practice is really about grieving. That is, the grieving process of letting go deeper and deeper, letting go of outer things and inner things, till there's nothing else to let go of. But on this level, it's the unfinished business of loss or longing or grief or fear or the loneliness we've never faced or the boredom or the excitement or the unexpressed love. How many ways we wish that life had been other than it is and how long we've held those wishes in our bodies, in our beings, in our hearts and how much we've shot ourselves down because what was wasn't okay and what should have been was what we wanted and so there's every kind of tear and rage and fear and loss and creativity and imagination and all those things come out in this aspect of our being and to heal this we need to hear this music too we need to honor this as a part of our being For without this, our practice wouldn't become integrated. It really wouldn't become a part of who we are. It would remain somehow superficial. Now, how to do that when that arises? It doesn't mean that you have to sit here and go over your story. You've already done that. He said and she said and they did and so forth over and over. The record, it's broken, you know? It goes over and over already many times. What it asks is that as things come from the past that feel deeply unfinished, not that we tell the story over and over, but that we feel them. Feel them in our bodies, in our emotions, in our hearts. And give the feeling space. Note it. Very simple. Name it. Sadness. All right. Name it and see how long sadness lasts sad, sad, sad. Will it last 10 notes or 15? What happens to it as you feel it? Give it all the space it wants. Then it becomes bigger, and sadness disappears, and it turns into grief. So now you've noted sadness, sad, sad 10 times, and now there's grief that wells up. Grief, grief, and maybe you cry. turns into tears, tears, and then that passes through, and then you're quiet for a little bit. And then you know what happens? Sadness comes again, for a hundred times maybe, or some other feeling comes. It's to honor whatever arises. It's like the opening of a flower, one petal at a time. It comes because it's supposed to, because it wants to release, because it wants to be honored, because deep within us there's this movement to open whenever we pay attention Whenever we're really mindful. So it's bowing to it, it's honoring it. Now you'll notice as you sit that there's some things that come back very often. Kind of the top ten tunes. Hi, come on in. It's a whole crowd, huh? Find a place to sit wherever you like. You've missed the good part, but it's all right. Get worse from here. <laughs> we'll see. So sometimes we're sitting and there's these releases of memories and feelings from the past, and emotions, and unfinished business. Sometimes what you notice is they're kind of top ten tunes, themes that come back over and over and over again. And if something comes back over and over and over again, if it's repeated, there's a simple thing you can do in working with it, which isn't to tell its story or try and analyze it. It's to ask yourself a simple question. What what wants to be felt? That's all. What wants to be felt? And so sometimes you'll see, you know, sexual fantasies come over and over and over again. I had that a lot in my early practice. Many, many kinds. And at first I thought, well, lust, you know, I'll just name it and maybe it'll go away. But after a while I noticed something interesting when I really paid attention. That it came very strongly and as I paid attention, it came when I was lonely. And it really had very little to do with sex at all it was loneliness and as soon as I acknowledged how lonely I felt lonely lonely and felt it in my body and just named that was there that it lost almost all its charge it would come for just a little bit or sometimes some thought comes over and over and over again plans to do this and do that and it keeps making these plans and then as you pay attention you realize you're worried or anxious that's what's going on. What, feel, what wants to be felt that keeps coming back? Oh! Anxiety. Anxious. Anxious. Feel it. Give it all the space it wants. Anxious. And it moves and it opens. Anxious. Bigger. Anxious. Anxious. Very big. Anxious. 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 Just letting it spin. Gradually dissipates. And then the thoughts don't need to come so much because you've really felt what's there. Do you understand this kind of attention? If we pay attention, things always open. If our attention is genuine, not trying to change it or get it to go away or fix it, it might get stronger first. You might note fear, fear, and then it turns into terror. Okay, terror, terror. This, I hate this, hating, hating, you know. And you're just being with it, but it will open if you give it space. That's really what part of what attention is. And as you listen to the song of it and you touch it with attention and with kindness, you start to sense that it's just an empty dance. It's like a movie or a cloud or a dream. From Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, speaking about the heart of practice, he says, when you awaken your heart, You find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find as you look closely that you are looking into outer space. The more deeply, it's like the poem John read last night. The more you look in, the more you see it's space. What are you? Where is your heart if you look? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible or solid. Of course, you might find something very solid if you have a grudge against someone or if you've fallen possessively in love. But that's not the awakened heart. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there's nothing there except for tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There's no skin or tissue covering it. It is pure raw meat. Even if a tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is open and tender and very personal. And this open fearlessness comes from letting the world touch your heart. It's quite a description of the heart. Space and tenderness and joy and sorrow all together. As we listen deeply, as we pay attention, and don't close ourselves off to the movement, to the pain, to the joy, to the physical sensations, to the emotions, to whatever is arising. There comes a kind of stillness around all that comes, in and around it. And we sense that it moves through space, the space of mind, the space of consciousness. In fact, as you listen to its song, you find that it is just movement or vibration. You feel your body and whatever feels solid if your attention is careful this pain or this heat or this tightness the more carefully you feel that pain in your shoulder it's actually not just a solid pain but there are there's needle pricks and pins and fires and vibration and tingling if you really go into it it's not solid it's a dance maybe a painful dance but a little dance or if you feel some other sensation in the body and you really pay attention it's not still at all. It's always changing and fluid and moving. If you note feelings as I've been talking about, very rarely does a feeling last longer than 15 labels. It's true. You know, you think I've been angry all day or I've been depressed all week. That's because you're not paying attention. But if you really give it space and name it depressed, depressed and just see what it does giving it all the space it will kind of move through you might get stronger very depressed then you get frightened and all of a sudden you realize you're not depressed anymore you're really frightened so you name fear Fear, depression doesn't last so long it turns into fear which might turn to sadness which then might turn into being at peace again (coughs) just as the body isn't solid feelings are not solid when we bring our attention to them and thoughts, my God I mean, look at them. They're like litter. (laughs) And we could go through here and sweep up after every sitting, you know? Wherever we pay attention deeply, it becomes flowing, changing, ungraspable, unpredictable movement. That's what it is. It's like those slides we saw last night of the stars moving. And as we listen deeply, we note that our whole experience, there's not a place in it that isn't moving. We are a river. The Buddha called us five processes. The five changing processes. That's what a human being... He said, I don't want to talk about people. You're a five changing process. That's, that was his name for people. So it's changing and flowing and ungraspable. You also see as you look that you can't avoid pain that pain and pleasure are part of what it is to be incarnate at all, part of what it is to exist. Like light and dark and birth and death, they're inseparable, unavoidable. And in seeing that over and over really deeply, then one can stop running. There's nowhere to get to where you can run away from it. So you might as well say, this is how it is. It changes. It's pleasurable and painful both together. And most of all, it's ungraspable. There isn't anything you can say, well, this is me, this is myself. You begin to sense that your whole sense of self is fluid. There's a kind of a letting go that happens just as we listen more. A a dying, really, of our old sense of self, of our images, of who we think we are. Remember the story of Mullah Nasruddin? He went into the bank to cash the check and the teller said, could you please identify yourself? And he pulled out the little mirror and said, yep, that's me, all right. (laughs) We are who we think we are. And that's all. Our ideas about ourselves create some sense, I'm this way and that and I was this and I'll become that but with a deep listening we start to see that this sense of self that's just a thought that's just our ideas and you've looked at thoughts they're litter they're not really very solid well how about feelings I'm my feelings are you your feelings? but they only last 15 labels right? (laughs) well I'm my body nah doesn't make much sense after a while does it? you're not this body we'll talk about that in a minute (laughs) well then what am I? And you start to sense that none of that can be yourself, but that you are this play or pattern. Our nature is really very mysterious, much more mysterious than we let ourselves remember, because it would be a little scary. But it's beautiful, too. I met a person recently who came to Spirit Rock, the center in California. In his 70s, his wife had died this summer. And he was a materialist, you know, when you die, you become just dust and ashes, and that's how it is. Um, He'd grown up in a scientific household, and that was his belief. And he turned to me, he was in his 70s, he said, My wife died after 49 years of marriage. She died in, in August. I didn't believe in any of this stuff. He said, But then one afternoon in September, bright sunny afternoon, she came to see me in our living room. And she looked at me, and I looked at her. (laughs) She was with a couple of other kind of people, like she'd just finished some processing or something, he said. And then she kind of waved at me, make sure I saw her, and then she went through this door. He said, this doorway was filled with the most inutterably beautiful light you could imagine, a kind of light I'd never seen before in my life. He said, I didn't believe in any of this. And then somebody gave me Raymond Moody's book, A Life After Life, and I start to see all these people are having this experience. Or Rodney told me a story yesterday at dinner about someone in his hospice work who was dying, really near death, whose whose brother had just died in a car accident. And the family decided, well, we shouldn't tell him because he's on his deathbed. He's going through his own process. Let's not tell him right now. And so they all decided not to. And the family went in with Rodney to see this man. And he looked up at them and he said, How come you didn't tell me my brother died? And they said, How do you know? He said, Well, I've been talking to him. And 10 minutes later, he closed his eyes and died. So it's not exactly the way it seems. And we're not just this. Kabir says we're like the ocean. Or hundreds of millions of stars were made of the same thing. Now, even as space opens and our attention deepens and we get those beautiful moments, ah, now it's peaceful, now it's pleasant, now there's joy. Well, I worked really hard. I this is it, I deserve it. <laughs> you know those moments that come? <laughs> Things get quiet and beautiful as you get more continuous in practice, that's how things open. You get more and more continuous. Again, there often arises this old habit to grasp at it. Oh, now I've got it. This is it. This state, this rapture, this openness, this moment of peace. If only I could keep this. And we see ourselves trying to hold it and grasp it and get it. And that becomes, that really is our first and our last great problem. It is. Even enlightenment is a problem. There are stories that we've heard of awakening, bliss, understanding, perfection everlasting, some amazing experience, the end of all my pain and conflict. If I work and struggle, I'll get to it. I'll undergo any agony. I'll even sit a three-month course. But I must have this, right? And so we get this idea that there's this thing, this state, and we try over and over to get something to stay. And then, some point, sooner or later, it begins to dawn on us that all the conflict and the sorrow and the suffering and the frustration that we experience is none other than, is just the same as our hopes, our aspirations, our desires, and our demands, that we want it to be any way at all, is our suffering. And there comes to us a sense of the true path. And the true path to liberation, to freedom, to joy, is not to fix it or grasp it or gain anything whatsoever but it is to discover now, here and now, that which is timeless and eternal and unborn and undying. It is to awaken in this present and to touch all that arises with the wisdom and the love of a Buddha. In this very simple setting, here we're just sitting and walking, some great and wonderful thing can happen for you. It really can. And that's what we're here for. I want to end with a story and a short story and a little reading. A good friend of mine and of some of the others of us in the community a man named, was a man named John Hobby, one of many of our community who has died of AIDS. So many beautiful young men especially. I live in San Francisco where there's a really big community of friends who have AIDS. And John was one of them. Very devoted and beautiful guy. And as he got weaker and we would meditate together once in a while or I'd visit him. He got really weak but he still wanted to make contact and I couldn't go all the time so I would call him on the phone. And sometimes, he, toward the end, he, he could hardly talk. He'd just say, hi, are you there? You know? And then I'd say, John, do you want to chant together? And I'd just hold the phone, and we would chant together, namo tatsa Baguato. And I'd hear his voice, namo tatsa, on the other side of the phone. And we would do that. That would be our way of just kind of holding hands through the telephone. He was a very wonderful man. But anyway, he chose his song, like the beginning of this talk, listening to that a song of birth and death, the song of the child. He chose his song and he asked that it be read to him several times a day near the end of his life, and read to him as he died, and read to him afterward. And it's a passage from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And it's said that if you listen to such a passage deeply, you'll be awakened. It could save you a lot of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) So I read it to you and commend it to your listening. Remember the clear light, the pure, clear light from which everything in the universe comes, to which everything in the universe returns. The original nature of your own mind, the natural state of the universe, unmanifest. Let go into the clear light. Trust it. Merge with it. It is your own true nature. It is home. The visions you experience exist within your consciousness. The forms they take are determined by your past attachments, your past desires, your past fears, your past karma. These visions have no reality outside of your consciousness. No matter how frightening some of them may seem, they cannot hurt you. Just let them pass through your consciousness. They will all pass in time. No need to be involved with them. No need to be attracted to the beautiful visions. No need to be repulsed by the frightening ones. No need to be seduced or excited by the sexual ones. No need to be attached to them at all. Just let them pass. If you become involved with these visions, you may wander for a long time Confused? Just let them pass through your consciousness like clouds passing through an empty sky. Fundamentally, they have no more reality than this. If you become frightened or confused, you can call on any luminous being whom you trust for protection and guidance. If you can look into the visions you can experience and recognize that they are composed of the same pure, clear light as everything else in the universe. Remember these teachings. Remember the clear light, the shining light of your own nature. It is deathless. No matter where or how far you wander, the light is only a split second a half a breath away it is never too late to recognize the clear light let's sit for a minute The rhythm of your breath is no different than the rhythm of the stars. It doesn't matter here if you have visions or rapture or whether you get concentrated or not. If your heart learns the smallest things that you can let go into what is. That you can feel your breath and just be with it a few times in a day, just resting in the breath. That you can learn the greatness of your heart to touch that which is painful with compassion and discover (coughs) that it won't hurt you. That you can learn kindness, that you don't have to hold on. If you learn that even for a moment, your time here is really well spent. Because what else is there to learn in in the long run, in the big game? What else really matters to us? No matter where or how far you wander, the light is only a split second, a half breath away.